we don't have to wait for an immemorium. We don't have to wait for the next protest. We don't have to wait for the next pandemic to simply say thank you, you know, to simply say you survived and you thrive and you are an example, you are a beacon, you are someone who opened doors when you may not have known you were opening mm. doors. Welcome back to In These Uncertain Times, a podcast about creating and connecting in the midst of uncertainty. I'm your host, Derek Horn. Did you know that there are transcripts available for each episode of the show? Head to DerekJHorn.com slash Uncertain Times to find text versions of every interview and catch up on episodes you may have missed. Today's guest, Michael Counter, is a Black, queer, United States Air Force veteran, entrepreneur, creative strategist, and diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant. As founder of the creative boutique Counterculture, Michael amplifies narratives that often marginalize live experiences to educate, entertain, and edify communities and businesses through signature collaborations, brand partnerships, and talent relations. Following an honorable discharge from active duty, Michael began his graduate studies at Southern Methodist University in creative writing for his master's, and then arts and cultural traditions for his PhD, while also gaining years of experience in the public relations and advertising fields with brands like Neiman Marcus, Chipotle, Dallas Museum of Art, Southwestern Medical Foundation, and Michael's Craft Stores. He currently lives in New York City with his partner and frequently collaborates with leading agencies, brands, and networks, securing coverage and partnerships for queer and multicultural projects as seen in Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, and Rolling Stone magazine. Michael and I had a great conversation about queer art and honoring our elders while they're still with us, how his firm Counterculture is bringing queer trends and POC narratives to client projects in the COVID era, and together we pine for the days of collective gatherings and shared experiences. Well, thank you, Michael, for joining on In These Uncertain Times. How are you doing? Doing well, Derek. Thank you again for allowing me to, to join you on In These Uncertain Times. So to get started, can you please introduce yourself to listeners in your own words? Yes, my name is Michael Counter. I am a Black queer Air Force veteran, storyteller, and the founder of the creative boutique Counterculture based here in New York City. So how has COVID forced you to adapt your process and kind of your work priorities? I think the pandemic, um, especially here in New York City, because we were hit um, so unbelievably uh, terribly in the beginning of the, of the, um, of the outbreak, mm-hmm. work with my clients from uh, with counterculture, the, what I loved is that my clients were immediately ready to f- try to figure out to be, you know, how, how to make it work for everyone. You know, mm-hmm. um, I did not for one second have anyone saying like, you know, well, we're going to see how it's going. We'd still like to meet in person. Like the minute, I think maybe late February when we were getting rumblings of it stateside, I was very fortunate to have uh, a clientele who was like, Hey, We've already closed our offices. We are not looking or expecting, you know, certain reports. We're actually going, some of my clients actually took kind of a couple of weeks just to breathe, you know, yeah. um, you know, and I, I work primarily with the, with creatives and creative-led companies. So these are branding agencies, creative agencies, marketing and advertising agencies. So um, fortunately they were able to, you know, schedule in maybe, two-ish, two to three weeks of just what is COVID? How are we, you know, (laughs) like, you know, what does this mean for, you know, general day-to-day operations? What what safety precautions must be in place? I was really fortunate to see at least kind of from a very hyper-local standpoint, um, my New York City-based clients were, let's let's understand where we all are and then move forward. And then I, I work with clients all over um, all over the country. So folks over in LA where, you know, let's, this time last year, you know, it was the Grammys, it you know, like award season and a lot of really cool entertainment um, shows that we, you know, that we know and love were getting back to getting back to their production schedule um, as usual and things halted, you know, and mm. even, even there on the on the west coast we had folks who were like you know what we're gonna put a pin in it you know this isn't a no we don't need your services this isn't a you know we're 
shutting down altogether, give us a break. And so I really just appreciate um, the fact that everyone literally took a breath, no pun intended. Um, and to me, that was the biggest, you know, just there was an understanding that the world was changing. We needed to understand in, in a collective push to figure it out in the most efficient and most compassionate way, I think. Um, so, you know, for me, I work remotely primarily or virtually anyway. So it wasn't yeah. as if, um, you know, counterculture, we didn't need, we didn't necessarily need to like shut doors or, you know, figure right. out where, where um, you know, where people needed to be. Our thing was just how can we support our clients with their timetable um, in the most, you know, compassion because folks literally um, began to to pass away, you know, as early as, you know, March, March, April, which was really, really sad, but we, we were fortunate to be able to make it through. And um, I think if anything, uh, the compassion and just attention to the humanity of working mm. in the industry was the most, to me, the most beneficial thing about operations so far in the past year or so. Totally. Yeah, I think that it's funny. There was probably about a, re- a year ago now, give or take, in, in January, when we were starting to get these rumblings and kind of this was on the horizon. But I do remember back in March, it was kind of this, despite all of that, it was like it still kind of felt like it hit us out of nowhere. And there was that kind of week or two where everybody was kind of, discombobulated and getting their bearings of okay what is this new completely virtual world (laughs) we're working in look like what are kind of the new norms and um things like that that we're going to be working with yeah i think primarily with kind of the agency experience or um you know design branding agencies we're already kind of used to you know using certain kind of apps and platforms Mm -hmm. to stay Mm -hmm. connected even you know even doing brainstorms, everyone's in the office, but, you know, we're using, you know, virtual whiteboards and, you know, different project tracking systems. So it wasn't as if we didn't have the tools. I think um, we just needed to figure out if we could do all of it in our various time zones and managing deadlines and those kinds of things. So it's, you know, human ingenuity. We were able to, you know, innovate and iterate and do all the things that we say we do in our mission statements or in our company taglines and do it in real time under you know some of the most unbelievable um unbelievable circumstances and pressures totally so it sounds like counterculture has been very supportive and accommodating to your clients through this period but what types of points of view can counterculture bring to clients that other firms can't I love this question because <laughs> um, I, you know, again, I'm a Black queer, of course, better, and all of these things, none of these things are supposed to exist in the same spot, you know, so being, um, being the founder, being at the, you know, at the forefront, we are a Black-owned, queer-owned, veteran-owned business, and to be able to bring um, the perspectives and the sensitivities from kind of my lived ex- experience, just by, you know, kind of being chief executive, but then to also recognize that as we, you know, kind of witnessed last year, as we were trying to figure out how to work within the the constraints or under the constraints of COVID, um, it brought up a lot of like workplace issues, you know, that we Mm. saw, um, you know, power dynamics, um, how how, uh, companies had previously been supporting their employees um, and their clients. Um, You know, folks who said that they were uh, very much supportive of marginalized groups, minorities, women, POC, um, you know, queer folks, queer and trans people. Um, You actually had to begin to see how your walk matched your talk. And when it comes to counterculture, you know, yes, the, you know, kind of commander in chief <laughs> myself, you know, like my, my identity markers of course check certain boxes, but my lived experience um, and the stories and things that I look to, the narratives rather that I look to amplify through the work that we do really is at the center of what we, 
what we do differently. You know, I like to say that, you know, a counterculture, we connect differently. We connect the dots differently. Um, we have an opportunity in leveraging queer, trans, and POC talent in the way that we do to not only simply support a creative agency or a branding agency's business development and bring on new projects that they may not be able to have access to because, I mean, as you know, working in industry, if you are working your day to day, everyone wants to design, everyone wants to brand, you want to do the job you've been hired to do. And we all have the pressures of bringing on that next great project. And then we are now seeing that folks sincerely or just from a money grab standpoint, do want to participate in what is current. And what's current is people uh, from marginalized groups, queer folks, trans folks, our, our voices are being heard in new and different ways. We're tackling uh, different topics politically, socioculturally, um, digitally, and doing so in really creative ways. And your, your kind of run-of-the-mill corporate agency or corporate brand they were not built to recognize us. So finding our narratives as they matriculate through the system, by the time it gets to CMO or to, you know, even, you know, getting a product launch or an activation out to the public, it, our stories have been distilled or it's not even about us, you know. So um, with, with counterculture, we have an opportunity to not only, you know, bring new business, new narratives to the table. We can also bring the unique talent. We can bring the queer folks, the, you know, our, our queer and POC and trans folks to the table to actually showcase their talent and, and to be able to, you know, elevate a, a company's mission or their, you know, their brand vision using, you know, the nuances of our experience, and then to also be able to provide the creative strategy, you know, let's, you know, we bring on a really cool project, that's great, we can flesh it out with these different perspectives. And then if you don't have the bandwidth to execute this really amazing work that we're bringing to you, counterculture can also find the talent. We can recruit the proper talent to help you flesh out your team and help you get your project out on time, whether freelance or full-time. And so it's really about creating sustainable systems that you know not only support the corporate, the corporate world or simply plugging in, you know, the diversity higher into uh, into a company to simply say like, we've hit our quota, we have our black people, we have our brown people, we have our queer folks. So of course we're doing that kind of work. That's only a part of the equation. Um, with counterculture, what we're really, what we love to see um, happen is that because we work with creative-led companies and helping them um, expand their, uh, their talent pool with queer and POC talent, um, we also know that there are very entrepreneurial queer folks and POCs in the industry or folks looking to break into the industry, and we should support them too. So instead of simply, you know, doing one part of our job in recruiting great marginalized talent and helping, um, you know, helping these brands meet their quota and, um, and flesh out their teams, we're, we're able to put funding back into creative-led projects by queer, um, you know, queer trans POC creators. And so um, I'm really excited about some of the, uh, the projects that we are producing in-house via counterculture that are also being supported through some of the other talent recruitment and business development and uh, creative strategy things that we're doing for our clients. I love that. And one of the words that stuck out to me that you said is this idea of sustainability. So I know like when it comes to featuring queer artists, uh, it's oftentimes are rolled out for Pride Month in the month of June. You see all over these ads and um, brand activations and things. And then the rest of the 11 months, you don't really hear from them when surprise, queer people exist. Queer people exist 365 days a year. Um, and I would even right. same to an extent, I think over the summer with we saw with um, the Black Lives Matter movement, and it's like these things, they're not trends, it's a movement towards <laughs> progress, and that's where society is moving. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you cannot treat it as this kind of bandwagon for free to hop on for whenever things are in the headlines, it's this is the way that the world is moving. So um, either jump on or you get left behind. Yeah, yeah, I, I think and you mentioned getting left behind. I think that 
Um, one of the really wonderful things, it, it may be um, just kind of where we are with social media, but I love the fact that, you know, COVID was hitting, the protests and the uprising was occurring during the summer. And, you know, at least in New York City, when it came to Pride, there were so many um, publications and mm. brands still just trying to figure it out. Like, were we going to have a traditional Pride? You know, even right. if it was virtual, were we going to try to do something that kind of ignored the pandemic? Um, or just, again, because people had at that point been um, quarantined for two or three months and we, you know, people wanted to offer some levity and lightheartedness because pride is also that it's, you know, it's one of the times during the year where we can, you know, shed our skin, you know, get rid of any kind of, again, no pun intended, get rid of masks um, that we wear kind of throughout the year and really be able to connect and, and sh uh, show and celebrate who we are as a collective and as individuals. And, um, we were able to also see in real time that there were a lot of brands who were being called out by their employees um, or by their supporters because they, again, were not walking their talk. You know, um, you saw folks who were like, oh, you know, we really believe in, in the, we really truly believe in uh, Black lives and supporting queer folks and all of these things. And it's like, well, like three months ago, none of that was present in your campaign strategy. None of that was appearing in your marketing. So yes, like we hear you, but where have you been, you know? Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it's, it is, I think there has been a shift in how brands and companies are going to begin to participate um, in larger social or political conversations and Counterculture is prepared to get them the talent and prepare them with the ideas and the trainings and things that are necessary to help better um, articulate our experiences to where they don't seem contrived, where they don't seem um, inauthentic. You know, there's a way for large, you know, traditional brands to be able to open up the table for us to share our experiences without them losing who they are. Um, you know, but rather simply saying, we've always been here. We've always been supporting your products. We've always been in your communities. Let us let us show you our experience of America, our experience of the of the world. You know, so I'm excited and hopeful, um, uh, mostly um, rather than I think um, annoyed or cynical um, because I know that could be the case with some folks um, after seeing the, the, the last year we've been through. Totally. Um, I know you mentioned that you have this unique uh, perspective as a Black queer Air Force veteran. Do you think that there's anything specifically from your experience as an Air Force veteran that is uniquely prepared for you for the work that you're doing now? Strategy. <laughs> I think that um, my, uh, my <clears throat> what they call your your AFSC. My my job was in navigation, and um, you know just figuring out how to literally connect the dots so that the mission could continue forward. Um, you know as efficiently and as safely as possible um, to be able to kind of delegate certain tasks to various team members in a timely fashion so that all things could be uh, reached at the correct point, uh, so like I said, safely and, and uh, assuredly. So um, I think strategy, I think community, you know, like recognizing that there's a, a bigger picture at play, you know, totally. there were some really remarkable, um, you know, service members um, who I served with that really gave me the lay of the land. These were, queer individuals who I, when I joined under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, um, being out in uniform was, you know, still this scary thing. Um, and I was fortunate to not only join under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, but then to still be with, uh, to, or to complete my, to complete my service. Um, and by the end of it, uh, the repeal had occurred. So to see just, you know, what one piece of legislation could do for community of folks, was entirely liberating even in this day and age. And so I think that, you know, again, strategy, camaraderie, having a vision of um, a larger picture, you know, the our Air Force 
tenants are integrity first, service before self and excellence in all you do. And I think that my work, my track record, the work that I do through counterculture, the folks that I look to lift up through um, the project we produce fit still with that kind of uh, mission and, and motto. Love that. Uh, so I know one of the exciting things you're working on now is this Legends of Drag project. Do you mind telling us a little bit more about that? Oh my gosh, yes. I love Legends of Drag. I'm so proud of this project. <laughs> um, Legends of Drag is the brainchild of creative director Harry James Hansen, one of my queer sisters here in New York City, um, and a dear, dear, dear creative partner. Um, of Harry's named Devin Antheus, who uh, resides out in San Francisco. Devin is a remarkable floral designer, um, writer, and spirit worker. And I mention that because the project is an it's on it's an archival project that celebrates the elders in the drag community, mm-hmm. and we literally. Um, give them their flowers while they're here. Uh, Devin designs these really beautiful arrangements that um, when everything is all said and done, when you see these remarkable photos, um, it shows that drag has existed for centuries. And in our very short memory span, we have an idea that drag is a very youthful um, kind of pop culture mainstream thing, mainstream mm. thing, and that is that's very recent, and that's great. You know, I it's an it's amazing thing to see and to have, and it's spreading across the world thanks to Drag Race. Um, but when we think of some of the campaigns and things that we saw last year about supporting the people of America, supporting our communities, there are within our talent pool of the legends of drag truly, you know, institutions. Like there are, you know, remarkable performers like the late Lady Red, uh, Mother Lady Red Couture who passed last summer. Uh, we were fortunately able to capture her beautiful spirit, mm. but she's like, her her tagline um, was the largest lip syncing um, drag, drag queen in captivity. You know, this like <laughs> over six foot five, tall, beautiful, um, you know, black drag queen that we know and love from um, the Hey Queen TV show with um, the wonderful Johnny McGovern. And, you know, we have folks that people might recognize. Um, we have the oldest working drag queen who's 89 years old, Darcel. Um, she's 89 years old and happy about it. She's out in the West Coast in Portland. And you know, it's not just the fact that she's the oldest working drag queen. This woman has written books. This woman has lived through the HIV AIDS epidemic. Um, and, um, you know, we have this really awesome opportunity with Darcel in particular because they've also owned, um, they've had a, a, a club, you know, for the, the last, I think, several, several years, you know. So not only, um, not only is Darcel a business owner and entrepreneur, um, drag performer, but, you know, at 89 is still out here, you know, writing books and performing, you know, these are, these are pillars of our community. These are the people who were doing it before it was popular. And as you know, um, at least for millennials, um, you know, before there was a drag race, a lot of the practices, traditions that would be passed down through queer culture there's a gap because we lost so many people due to HIV AIDS. So when we do have a project like Legends of Drag that celebrates drag elders, the folks who made it through, who continue to show us how to celebrate, who continue to show us and inspire us and show us how to to protest and to do it with vigor and passion and color, um, to not be afraid to continue to pursue how we interpret the American dream. Mm. These are remarkable, you know, this is a remarkable cast of characters. We have, um, uh, who's it? We have um, Love Connie, who is from Los Angeles. Folks might recognize from, um, you know, some of the shows and things that she does with uh, the Drag Race Girls. But again, a remarkable story and a great span when you look at Darcel, when you look at Love Connie, when you look at Lady Red Couture, 
these are drag performers who have very different drag styles, come from different generations, and obviously various, um, you know, different ethnicity and gender makeup or and background. So the Legends of Drag project, I think, is a remarkable um, project that is at the heart of senior living, pop culture, um, music, and just kind of the new Americana, like these people that we are featuring um, over uh, the next, we're wrap, we look to wrap shooting um, at the end of this year, um, but the folks that we have featured are like, you know, 80 rock stars who, you know, have been the pillar of their queer community for ages, 20, 30, 40 years, um, you know, so we are looking to not only celebrate them, not only uh, pay homage, but to say that we don't have to wait for an immemorium. We don't have to wait for the next protest. We don't have to wait for the next pandemic to simply say thank you, you know, to simply say you survived and you thrive and you are an example, you are a beacon, you are, um, you know, someone who opened doors when you may not have known you were opening mm. doors for queer kids like myself who are from Arkansas and have the notion um, in the gall to show up in New York City and say, I want to work with queer sisters and make a project about drag queens, you know, who are older. You know, like that's that's a remarkable thing to be able to to do and to see into fruition. So many thanks to Harry and to Devin. We are um, raising seventy five thousand dollars this year to wrap up the project. We have probably six or seven more cities across the country that we're going to cover to round out the eighty legends who will be part of our art book and subsequent exhibition. Uh, we have just signed with Abrams Publishing, so the book is coming in 2022. Um, again, we have a few a few more shoots, and so I will simply share, if folks are interested, go to legends, legendsofdrag.org. We are a 501c3 uh, organization, so you can make a tax-deductible um, donation. Every little bit counts, and I'm excited that counterculture is um, supporting the project through creative strategy and figuring out new ways to help elevate the project and share the story um, and highlight these remarkable, talented folks, um, you know, in digital and um, different content series that we hope to have out later in the year and early next year. Wow. I, I Even just hearing you describe that, I haven't seen any of the images yet, but I just have goosebumps hearing about this, so I can't wait <laughs> till it comes out. Um, just because I think that that we owe so much to our elders and they're definitely like, even just thinking about, uh, I know drag race is such like a microcosm of the, the, the queer community as a whole, but there's this season, there's this queen Tamisha Iman who is, she's middle-aged. She's not as old as, yes. <laughs> um, probably the elders you're capturing, but there's this unique dynamic where she's kind of older. She's in her, I think around 50 when all these other queens are usually in their 20s or early 30s. So it's been this kind of interesting dynamic that's been at play there. Mm -hmm. I, um, as far as the kind of the age, I think the, um, what's really awesome is to see not only the um, kind of multicultural aspect, but the intergenerational aspect of the program, because we have folks like Darcel who's 89 years old and you know, that means that, you know, civil rights movement, Vietnam, like all of these like top um, kind of moments in history. Yeah. Darcel has seen, you know, um, Lady Red Couture being able to not only be a drag queen, but also be a trans black woman in America during the 90s and early 2000s and, you know, making her way, um, you know, to our screens, um, you know, in this movie was really amazing. And so um, with the work that, like I said, Devin as a spirit worker, I think it's beautiful that not only are these shots stylized, not only are the stories that we're sharing authentic, but there is this idea of kind of a spiritual tradition, you know, drag for so many of us, you know, people would call going to the gay bars on Saturday would be Saturday church, you know, like this is, it's, it's you know, it's this, you know, kind of spiritual um, benevolent process and tradition that, you know, we hope to not only 
celebrate, but to ho hopefully be kind of a bridge to simply say to all of the lovely 11, 12, 13 year old girls and gays um, and queers who are in love with Drag Race for them to simply say like, hey, there was another batch of rock stars that didn't make it to your TV screens yet. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's definitely some examples and blueprints that we should not, um, that we should not overlook. Totally. So even beyond drag, things like street art, music, playwriting, and so many of the more outlets that are um, important parts of LGBTQ plus history, who are the queer artists that have inspired you the most? Queer artists who, so I will say, First, I don't, I will not say that this person that I will name identified as queer, but for me as a mm. Southern bred black queer kid growing up, Toni Morrison was like the, she, she was my first um, foray into what language could do. Mm. And you know, knowing um, the queer community's relationship to reading and shading and the turn of a phrase. Going to Toni Morrison first, understanding like Southern Gothic literature and the tradition there and understanding how to, how to use words to not only tell someone something, but to almost have some kind of like incantation to really paint the world, to manifest the thing that you wanted um, into being and for it to still be beautiful. She, Toni Morrison was like, you know, uh, kind of uh, for me, queer creative ground zero and that, and because of her work in the 70s, 60s and 70s with um, black feminists and black womanism, um, that led me to, you know, all of these remarkable women like Audre Lorde and, um, you know, and then from kind of a music standpoint, contemporarily now I'm so in love with Janelle Monet. I love, I love what they bring to the table musically, um, but also just a message like to be able to, from the minute you see her, to see that there is, there's something to be said from the, the style of dress. Um, you always know that there's going to be a message through the music and through the videos. Um, so yes, putting it in the universe, Janelle Monet, I will work, um, will work with her. And um, and then of course from kind of black queers, I feel like it would be remiss to not say um, James Baldwin. You know, mm. James Baldwin again. I'm kind of finding him through that entry point of Toni Morrison and um, black writers who were not describing things in a in a you know kind of stereotypical way or in a way that was kind of traditional. People who were challenging uh, form of writing and. Um, and then to, you know, kind of fast forward and see someone like a Missy Elliott in the 90s to show up. And again, not because they identify as queer, but because um, not from a gender or sexuality standpoint, but simply their existence was queer. Like they just didn't fit from meaning queer as in weird or, um, I don't know, counterculture. Uh, <laughs> uh, but to, you know, to, to see these individuals who had skin like my own, who maybe swished the way that I did, who appreciated, you know, bass lines and, you know, different um, kind of gospel leaning things in the way that I grew up. All of those people were kind of on my list of why I wanted to work in creative, why I wanted to, um, you know, to pursue um, academic studies and arts and culture and to obviously be led to support um, the communities that I'm part of in, you know, really, um, really large ways because um, it's all about getting the story out and having the narrative be as authentic as possible, regardless of the media. That's beautiful. So you described this incredible roster of folks who have inspired you. Have there been any defining moments in your life that have uh, kind of giving you clarity in your journey to where you are now and how has that kind of impacted the arc of your life? Yes, um, I think a defining moment, I will say, and I feel like this is so cheesy, it, was, it wasn't it was necessarily my coming out story because like, 
you know, like that's, I feel like that's, this is, these are the kinds of things that folks who are listening to, you know, um, queer folks talk, they're like, oh, it's the coming out story. Of course, that's the pinnacle. Um, my coming out was very uneventful because my, I have a very loving, you know, support system at home. Um, but I think where I did kind of figure out like, this would be who, you know, um, this would kind of help me chart my path forward as far as my identity goes, is um, my late Aunt Shirley, um, when I when I was coming out, I told her kind of, you know, I told her before I told my parents and she essentially gave me like a key to her, to her apartment or to her home and, and was like, you know, you're gonna be fine, like your parents love you, but if you need a place to come, just no questions, just come mm -hmm. here. You know, like she she knew, she knew my parents, like she, you know, she's obviously um, close to us. And um, she believed that my parents would be okay, but she gave me like this kind of nod of, you have a place to go. Those are the things in my life, those are the moments where similar when I was in the military, um, you know, finding queer leaders who were, who had been serving in uniform under Don't Ask, Don't Tell and understood how to navigate the system, who would just kind of pull me aside and say, hey, it's okay, you have a place. I know on paper, these are the rules, or I know this is what's being said to you, but you have room, there's space for you. So I feel like my work with counterculture is always to make space. Like I want to make space for these narratives. I wanna make space for these remarkable queer trans POC creatives uh, with whom I work, whether it's getting them into rooms where they can have full-time employment and work kind of uh, in a traditional way, or to simply figure out how to get them brand, uh, you know, brand support and funding for something that they see as, you know, paramount for, you know, telling the story of their community or, you know, or their experience. So, you know, the, the, the transition or that the transformative time for me in my life was those moments when people made space for me because again, when you have certain identity markers, black, queer, so on and so forth, um, there can be a lot of rooms or places and systems that are not made with you in mind. Mm -hmm. But when you can have what I call earth angels who will just say, there's a way to do it. You know, like there there's there's a there's a way to kind of you know, to pass through here or to go in this way, you know, so yes, thank you for the folks who made room that and, and I, I'm always compelled to do that with the work that I do. I love that. Yeah, I think I think when it comes to queer people, it's kind of the coming out story is kind of an expected part of um, kind of your, your life <laughs> story. And I think I think at least the way I think about it is it's not one moment. I mean, even for me, literally coming out was like a process of telling people over a couple years, I'm gay. But also it's like, even beyond that, it's like, as you move through life, it's like there, you're always kind of coming out in different moments and different settings and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. And then even on top of that, it's like, as long as you're open and receptive to it, it's like your relationship with your queerness and your identity can evolve through time. So it's like, you're even coming out to yourself in new ways, um, at least that mm -hmm. I found. So what is something that's important to you that you think society should be paying more attention to? You know, I, again, back to Legends of Drag, we have a really unique opportunity to look at how we are aging and to look at those who we consider to be our elders. Um, specifically within the queer community, we have a unique uh, chance to really, to see what it's like kind of not necessarily post HIV AIDS, but mm. to be able to corral around those, you know, our, our seniors, to be able to say like, we don't forget you after Stonewall. We don't forget you after the AIDS epidemic. We don't forget you. Like there's like there's so much more life. And obviously um, the people that are part of, um, part of Legends of Drag are testament to the fact that, you know, life keeps moving and we keep getting better and better. It's not as if, you know, um, these these queens stopped performing at the age of 40, you know, in some cases they were just right. getting started at the age of 40, you know, and we have this image across the board that 
anything on TV is just for young folks or, you know, or the, the, the trends are only applicable to, you know, that 18 to 34 demographic. But, you know, the pandemic showed that there are, there's like a new batch of elders who previously had no idea what a Zoom or any of, you know, Google Meet and things are. And now they have adopted this digital, um, you know, kind of incorporated more digital um, means and media into their lives. And so I'm excited about like, what are we calling these, I don't know, late in life, early adopters, or, you know, what are we, what are we doing to, to say there's, there is, again, there's room for um, there's room for other people at the table. We don't write people off just because they, you know, are considered retirement age. For all of the publications looking for unique angles, again, you know, listening to Darcel talk about, you know, her writing books or, um, or the bar that she owns, like, this is an entrepreneur from a business standpoint. What is it like, you know, like where's the story on Darcel, the oldest living drag queen in America, oldest, yeah, oldest living, oldest performing drag queen in America running a gay bar during COVID. Like what, you know, like where's that story? You know, who yeah. are the people that are interested in um, beauty products for queens, you know, or for women or, you know, um, non, non-gender conforming folks, you know, over the age of 50, you know, hello, Mac, like we're looking for the campaign. You know, it's, it's those kinds of unique opportunities where it's like, you have to show people that there's more there. You have to be prepared to say, this is great what we're doing, but there are definitely more folks that could be in the room. And so um, I think overall paying attention to our elders, paying attention to, um, the folks who have the institutional knowledge, who've lived mm. through um, some of these things, you know, it's, I thought it was really sweet that um, people were pointing out, I think Betty White, um, you know, she, she's like celebrated her 98th birthday. And they're like, you know, she was alive during the Spanish flu uh, pandemic. And it's like, that's wonderful. But we also, you know, we have, we have Queens too, who've lived through their, you know, who've, been through those things, you know, to be able to um, not only from a kind of, wow, this person has lived a life, but they actually have knowledge and experience, you know, through multiple recessions and depression and all of these things that we kind of think is, we think are like back then. It's like, no, like here, here's an opportunity for us to like sit at the feet of some really remarkable people who could teach us some things who could pass down some some traditions um, to us that obviously could that has sustaining power because they have used it to make it through. Um, so yeah, pay attention to pay attention to your elders, you know, and not from a um, just because of age, but you know, appreciation, like thank you, like you know, paying homage. I, I we should be thanking our elders more and more every day. I love that so much. Um, and I, I, I do think that it, it has been an interesting experience watching some parts of the gay community and how they're navigating COVID um, in not the most responsible ways. Um, and I just think about how the very recent history with HIV and AIDS and how like that, that forced people to change how they relate and kind of connect and engage with their community. So, and, and that and that was only a couple decades ago um, and it's still mm-hmm. to an extent ongoing. So it's, I don't know, it, it was very disappointing to see um, a few weeks ago, all these, these gays in Mexico partying for New Year's and just kind of uh, not, yeah. <laughs> it, it, and it, 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 it's kind of this individualistic mindset of like, oh, I'm healthy, I'm fit, I'm gonna be fine. Mm-hmm. When in reality, I do think that there are so many important lessons that we could be gleaning from our elders and how they navigated mm-hmm. that crisis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so I, I think um, we, you know, we're, it's easy to kind of draw comparisons between the onslaught of the HIV AIDS yeah. uh, epidemic and the um, coronavirus pandemic. I have talked with, you know, with some of my elders who were in New York specifically, um, you know, in the eighties and nineties. And, you know, they had stories that they, you know, like they were 
they were they had their their fair share of frustrations with their yeah. peers at the time who were also being reckless and not really maybe taking things as seriously or taking the collective um the uh, kind of collective situation uh, into uh, you know into some kind of perspective um and yeah. consideration so it's it is part of i guess kind of the the human yeah. experience um but i'm again there's there's been so many wonderful things again with folks having to learn new technology and figuring out how to connect in new ways so i'm hopeful that while there are those who have not been <laughs> not acted <laughs> in our best interest um the majority of us are really you know trying to do our part to stay safe individually and to keep our loved ones and things safe so that we can um you know find our way back to each other soon of course yeah and i and i do understand it's this tension i think folks are experiencing of life is short and for many people who have had difficult journeys to get where they are especially as queer people they they there's this inclination to want to celebrate and and have that joy but it's it's kind of how do you how do you balance that um with this community mindset it is it is a a, a balancing act mm-hmm, mm-hmm, for sure. um so one day hopefully this challenging pandemic will be behind us when you imagine that day what are you most hopeful for i am most hopeful you know following the pandemic or following what what will allow us to kind of get back to some kind of homeostasis i guess um i am looking forward to people being excited about each other again you know like mm. the 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 you know it's we've all gone through the swell of emotion of you know um not being with each other um in some cases a lot of people have either lost jobs or or you know the, uh, their financial situations have changed and with all of those pressures i think just the simple um notion of human contact like being able to like cackle and guffaw in my friends faces again um to be able to tell corny jokes and be you know just to be normal and to connect and to be able to to hug without worry and fear you know it's like those really simple things i think from a business standpoint i hope that 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 um longing for connection um will indeed spill over into kind of a lived compassion. I think that we've mm-hmm. been away from each other for so long. I'm really hopeful that maybe this starts a new wave of like, you know, wanting to be together again, you know, not just from a like I want to get out because these are my feelings and I can't be in the house anymore. It's more of, you know, what does that first concert look like? What does oh, what does the first those really big the large people events where it's just about riding the wave of whoever the performer is whatever the piece of art whatever the you know piece of music or food or whatever would bring us together but simply being excited and joyous about another human like this is this is something that we get to do again and it's not someone that's you know in a screen um anymore it's like getting back to to hugging and literally you know touch feel all of those sensational things that um maybe we take for granted in a place like new york city um or anywhere else for that matter but yeah i look forward to i look for, i look forward to like smiling really close in people's faces <laughs> and you know <laughs> just being near near my near my friends and family without any fear of um you know am i endangering you or vice versa. Very beautifully said. Yeah, I think there's been many points throughout the year where I think back to all of the times I either declined an invitation to schlep from Harlem to Brooklyn on a Saturday night or I did so begrudgingly. <laughs> It's like what I would give to be able to do that without any inhibition right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know. So, um I read this really cute, I guess like tweet um the other day and um was a, a, a mom like a mom um um tweeter and she was essentially saying i'm going to every 
every everything. I'm going to every card game, every cocktail party. I'm going to all the PTA meetings, just anything where they're where the people are, you know. Um, so I I'm excited because I think we will be excited to to be with each other again. That's 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 a sweet corny thing um, that I'm looking forward to. Very nice. Before we sign off, um, where can listeners find you online and find out more about the projects they're working on? People can find me most easily at Michael L. Counter on Instagram. That's my handle. Um, there is probably where I'll be, where I post most of the things I'm doing. Um, but when it comes to Legends of Drag, we have a remarkable site, legendsofdrag.org. Um, again, you can make a tax uh, tax deductible donation um, and any little bit helps. We are raising 75K by September, 2021. Um, and the book should be out in 2022 along with the exhibition. So um, check out you know our, our website and then you can also follow Legends of Drag on Instagram at Legends of Drag and see all of the kind of reference, some of the, re- the kind of reference, references that we're pulling from for the project, as well as some kind of behind the scenes things with Harry and Devin. And some of the shots that have been featured already are also listed, um, are also um, on our Instagram. So we have our shots from last year um, that were featured in Harper's Bazaar shots that were featured in Rolling Stone and our uh, inaugural series which uh, of shots that were executive produced by uh, RuPaul's Drag Race winner Sasha Velour, season nine winner, we love her. Um, she actually executive produced the first four shots um, for the project, um, which is how we were able to um, find ourselves in Vogue a couple of years ago. So always grateful um, for fellow queers in the community supporting the project. But yes, legendsofdrag.org and Legends of Drag um, on all social media. That's great. Well, thank you, Michael, for your time. And I am so excited to see how this incredible project um, continues to come to life. And I hope to talk to you again soon. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. And I appreciate in these uncertain times. It's a great podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you again to Michael for joining this week's episode. If you like the show, please be sure to rate and review on your platform of choice and consider sharing with a friend. If you or someone you know think would be a great guest, please email me at derekjhorn at gmail.com. In These Uncertain Times is created, produced, and edited by me, Derek Horn. The show's theme music is Strawberry Shortcake by Brasco. Until next time, thank you for listening and be well.